0: The following podcast is brought to you by cdkoffers.com. Use offer code dieshrink for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows codes. All right, on with the show. To Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Tom, and you know this is the the 24th most popular tech podcast in Kuwait, 28th in Belgium, as usual. As I've been doing lately, giving a shout out to the countries that jump up the charts the most in a given week. Um, but uh, enough of that. Enough of that randomness.
1: I'll let my guest introduce himself right now. So, hey everyone, I'm product manager for commercial notebooks, and day to day, you know, it's it's all about making a lot of decisions for the local market, um, and also helping. Um, I guess that the sales team excel in what they do. You know, I, I'm there to support a lot of the business that gets done, but also make a lot of decisions around the product. You know, how it's brought in, what the forecasts are like. Um, and i'm also involved in some p r and and sort of customer facing activities as well um not as many you know these days mm-hmm. with uh yeah. the global pandemic going on but um you know there is still an element of that um yeah so it's it it's really varied which I appreciate um and it gives me a lot of hands on time in i guess stuff that I am interested in right which is a lot of the technology side mm-hmm. of of the business.
0: And I get I actually do want to try to drill down a little bit on this to give people and you know cuz we got a mountain of reader mails that we'll be getting to. Some of them I think are really good. Like what actual decisions do you make on a laptop product that your company wants to launch? Like what are you actually touching in the process? What are you actually what what's a literal decision you've made?
1: Yeah, I mean a lot of it really comes down to marketing and product fundamentals around, you know, looking at data in in terms of, you know, looking at the market, you know, how many of, you know, X type of product is made or forecasting decision, right, based on trends, Um, a lot of decisions around how the products are maybe shown or merchandised locally, pricing to a lesser extent. You know, it's mm-hmm. a very large organization, so there's a lot of people that handle a lot of aspects that relate to it. And a, a lot of sort of what we call enablement for sales, right? Like I said, making them excel at their job, you know, in terms of getting back to customer queries, working on, you know, large um, tenders for for, for customers. Um, there's a lot of very nebulous aspects, but... Uh, I, I guess a big part of it is being like a technical resource, you know, what we call subject matter expert.
0: Right. Because when, you know, I think this is something a lot of people, like if you don't work at either a computer company or something that makes something that's a complex mechanical or electronic device that a lot of people buy, it's hard to kind of understand just how many hands actually go in to not just, like it, saying making the product probably wouldn't even be the right way to put it, but like I think the way you might put it is getting a product from start to the finish line, right? That's kind of what your goal is. I mean, what your job is is not like you're not the guy in AutoCAD designing the chassis of a laptop. You're not someone you know who designed the PCB. You're kind of someone who's there from start to finish aren't you kind of communicating with all of these different teams and making sure it launches on time am i correct
1: a good way to think about it is uh, like like a timeline and there's you know the, the very start is sort of like very early concept you know where you're sketching out rough ideas and then that sort of gets solidified into something a, a bit bit closer to reality, and then that might actually get some actual designs around it, and that'll get nipped and tweaked and tucked mm-hmm. by a different team, and so on and so. And you keep going down the pipeline. I'm kind of near the end, right? I kind of sit directly behind the the, the sales force that actually sell the product, um, but I do give feedback on you know product performance, maybe customer feedback in terms of feature set what's important what isn't and sometimes you know that that can get directly addressed in design changes and tweaks mm-hmm. other times you know that that sort of gets fed up the chain and it sort of adds to the weight uh around a specific decision that might not be made for another year or two
0: right so i guess let's start moving forward with some more of these uh discussion points then Um, The first thing, I mean, to just kind of dive into, you know, the whole laptop OEM conversation is I think let's, let's talk about how COVID-19 pandemic has affected the industry in general. Like what, like, you know, early this year between March and April, what were the challenges you had to face? And and you can, you know, it can be as general or specific as you want to your day-to-day work. I mean, like what, what challenges did you see at your, you know, workplace when this started all happening?
1: Great question. So, oh, it's probably worth mentioning before we start that uh, all these views are my own and not of my employers. I, I guess uh, depends on where you are in the world, first of all, yeah, because some countries locked down really quickly because they were, you know, directly affected or, or they had you know, uh, very close ties to China. So mm-hmm. they had to take swift action. Other countries like the US, you know, they stopped travel from mm-hmm. from entire regions um, to do what they could to mitigate it early on. So if you're in one of those regions that locked down pretty severely, there was a massive scramble by businesses to, to purchase mobility devices for their staff to relocate. Some companies were more or less ready to go, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, others had maybe the bones of the capability, but they needed to expand that. Um, I, I have a friend who works in uh, a government organization, and when they were sent home to work remotely, mm-hmm. uh, the first 48 hours was kind of chaos because their VPN could only accept 300 concurrent connections. Uh, and when you've got a staff of 3,000, uh, whoops. You know, that, yep. that isn't going to fly, right? <clears throat> so I think it exposed huge gaps in remote capability for a lot of workforces. You know, there's also a lot of security implications around having all your staff working remotely. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, if your security was focused on, you know, locking down and controlling your local network, but not necessarily, you know, the remote devices, um, you know, that... that there's, there's some ugly questions that get raised that i think a lot of, uh, IT managers had to, um, face some hard truths around, geez, we've got to open the checkbook and spend a lot of money quickly. I remember the, the place I worked for. Um, I mean,
0: I already, you know, I, I as an account manager you know, who worked remotely in Peoria, you know, to be close to some of the businesses here in central Illinois and around that area of the Midwest. So I was already working remotely for my company, right? Um, But then at this, and there were a lot of people in our company that frankly already had the laptops, but then there were some others where they were just used to using like a desktop for design or they had the laptop, but they didn't have anything else, right? And their Wi-Fi wasn't good at home. And the, I remember in the first couple of weeks, there was just a ton of this, like everyone was trying to work, but there were days where everyone was clearly like, yeah, we're not we're not gonna be able to get anything done today, are we? Like it was it was really interesting to watch. I know some people's businesses were just I mean, if they weren't already, you know, if they didn't already have half the people working from home, like you, as the example you gave, they were just Nothing got done for about two weeks. So Johnny Turbo writes in, and just like you guys can if you support us on Patreon, and he goes, we provide IT services for a small business, and many of them have been wanting laptops with docking stations over desktops during this pandemic. They can have the big screen and the peripherals in the office and still have all their files apps on the go. Have you seen similar trends? And do you have any insight as to what we can expect from future docking station technology? Thanks. Yeah, that's a great question.
1: Um, I think that that's been happening for a while, the whole docking to have a desktop-like experience with a notebook. Um, You know, all the major vendors have USB Type-C or Thunderbolt docks available. They all roughly have the same capability. Some might charge faster than others or have more ports. But at the end of the day, they give you that same experience, right, which is what Mm -hmm. matters. Um, And, you know, we might see an acceleration in that in terms of um, more users are are utilizing notebooks, but they still require that desktop experience, but from home. Um, And you've touched on um, some of your experience as well, where not everybody has the same internet connection at home. You know, not Mm -hmm. everybody has the space for a home office. How do you handle that? And there isn't always an easy answer to a lot of those questions. Look, I think the trend in the market has been that majority of purchases are laptops, and that'll continue mm-hmm. to be the case. You know, I think in most markets around the world, that's the case. Um, docking stations, the commercial ones, especially, aren't cheap. You know, mm-hmm. you can buy you know a fairly cheap one from Belkin or Targus for one or two hundred bucks, and that's fine. But it might not have Charging capability in it, or it might not have, you know, a lot of bandwidth um, mm-hmm. for for plugging in lots of screens. So that's where the commercial docks are. a Fair bit more expensive, but they give you that extra capability, um, and they're also uh, can be remotely managed as well. Quite often by um, the I, the company's IT. Right? Again, you don't get that kind of capability in consumer um, devices. Um. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's where I think we'll just continue to move in that direction. I don't think docking station technology is going to fundamentally change that much. The the, the one big change we had was moving from proprietary docks to, mm. to USB-C docking.
0: Yeah, that kind of changes everything, right? Funny how there was this big, am I wrong? Like, I feel like about five or six years ago, there was this big push from like HP and Dell and other major OEMs to have this proprietary dock for a business laptop that, I mean, I remember specifically HP would have this like almost PCIe connection open up on the bottom of a business laptop. And this like thing would just plug into the bottom of it. And then there's all your ports. But when you have like a Thunderbolt port, you can just have a dongle that has like six USB connections and an HDMI at the same time. So you almost uh, like a like what you would call a docking station almost seems obsolete at this point to me.
1: Yeah, I mean although major OEMs had them, they were they were kind of clunky. Yeah, they all mm-hmm. used like like sort of an older style PCIe proprietary connection that would literally click into mm-hmm. the side or the bottom of the notebook. Um some vendors did try to do interesting things like Lenovo had one that had a discrete graphics card inside of it. Yeah, for for the notebook. I, I thought that was pretty cool. I always loved those, that as an idea.
0: But uh, I don't remember it ever catching on or ever being implemented in a way that was truly the fullest potential, from my perspective.
1: Yeah, I mean, there were some advantages with the older docks where quite often the connection was a lot more secure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you could literally lock, lock the dock so you couldn't remove the laptop from the dock. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I how important that is i don't know um but so i guess kind of going back on
0: subject though for this uh reader mail question this next discussion point i mean i think a lot of people at least i saw in gaming forums online when this lockdown happened for a lot of people assumed oh so people can't go anywhere so maybe desktops will start taking market share back from laptops and in fact right the opposite has happened like like even though people are arguably moving around less they actually want their computer to be more mobile more am i wrong
1: no you you're absolutely on the head you know i think uh it was it was pretty obvious and it was widely reported early on that there was a huge surge in in purchasing of notebooks mm-hmm. from all the major vendors because you know, while a desktop is your best bang for buck device, you know it has great performance. Even a basic i3 or an i5 desktop will be a fair amount faster than most notebooks you can buy, uh, relatively speaking, right? Mm-hmm. For for a similar amount of money, um, a notebook it's it's a it's a device that has everything built into it. Right? It has a screen, keyboard, touchpad. It has a webcam. It has microphones. You know, if you don't even have a headset you can still participate in collaboration with your colleagues. Whereas with a desktop, you know, not everybody has a home office with a big desk for a desktop and a a screen and all that. You know, I've got colleagues that worked in their dining room tables and, and kind of still do in a few cases because they just don't have the space. So imagine giving that person a desktop and a keyboard and a mouse and like I don't know, like a twenty-four inch screen and then expect them to set it up somewhere, right? It's just not gonna work. And, um, and if you ship all these things to them, you know, what if most things
0: arrive, but then like the mouse didn't get to their house, right? At the same time. Like there's that wouldn't be helpful. That like from a logistical perspective, I can see why if you're a business, it's just like, look, I know if I give them this laptop. They technically have everything they need right when they turn it on. And the support we can give them from IT is this device. We know what camera you're using. We know what mic you're using. We know what mouth, you know. And so the support is a
1: lot easier to do effectively centralized, right? Definitely, definitely. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't realize or understand like how fundamentally critical that is, is ease of management um, mm-hmm. That's a big decision in in how IT products are deployed and managed, or even chosen to begin with, um, and that's a really important factor when it comes to choosing what device for your employees to use. Right, so you know, deploying a bunch of consumer devices that you know, might not be able to re- remotely manage out of band, that becomes very challenging to to deal with in this sort of decentralized uh, situation we're in at the moment in a lot of markets.
0: So what would you say is the point of a desktop for a business? Because the more I've talked to you and other people, it seems pretty clear to me that they were already on this trend to switch to mostly laptops. And it sounds like in the future, that's just accelerating now. I mean, what, what do desktops remain to be used for for businesses?
1: Um, a lot of Use cases are where you need fixed computing in a situation that employees have a particular workstation they sit down to work at. So, I don't say workstation in the high performance sense. I say workstation Mm -hmm. is in like the actual place sense. So, think a call center, right? It's a perfect Mm -hmm. go to example for a desktop. Quite often, you know, high schools or colleges Mm -hmm. that have computer labs. It's another great example. Yeah. I mean, look, that said, right. Laptops have gotten vastly better as well, probably just in the last three to five years in terms of their speed and capability. Um, you know, gone are the days where you'd have a laptop that would take 15 minutes to boot and, you know, battery (laughs) life was one or two hours, right. They've gone, they come a long way.
0: Well, let's, let's get into that then. So, I mean, can we go ten years back to like, or more to like, two thousand nine, and what you remember about, you know, kind of managing like laptop design back then?
1: Uh, sure. I mean, back then I, w- I was literally selling the product, but absolutely, you know, I I do remember not necessarily fondly of you know what <laughs> laptops were like back then, and and it and almost seems a bit crazy in terms of what we put up with. Um, and then, well, I'm only talking 10 years ago, if you go back even further, it was even even more just ridiculous. 15 it's to yeah. the point of,
0: it's honestly to the point of hilarity. Like how truly, I mean, bad laptops were, I mean, I'll just speak for myself. You know, my first laptop that I got kind of for like 3d modeling and gaming, you know, when I went to college was, you know, I actually thought it had a pretty nice screen, but I think it, I think it was like a 19 and a half inch screen. So it was enormous. I, I don't even know if they make, I'm sure there's someone does, but they even make laptops that big anymore. I think they usually max out at about 18 and a half. Now it was this kind of gorgeous for the time. I'm sure it's junk now. If I were to look at it Uh, like 19 and a half inch screen. And then I had to decide between like a 70 watt quad core at two gigahertz or with no hyper threading, of course, because we're in the core two era or a, dual core at three gigahertz and i chose the dual core because at the time games didn't really use more than two cores and that thing got so bloody hot i had to send it back twice because literally the plastic was melting like like you would there were burn and like warped plastic on the top of the laptop it had to be sent in for repair twice because of that and i think the, the strongest graphics cards were like You know, now they're putting like 2080 Supers that are underclocked in laptops. And back then, the biggest you'd get, I believe, was like a 60 class. So like a GTX 460, and it would be clocked like half speed. Like I'm saying like 300 megahertz for some of those mobile graphics cards. And then it would melt your laptop. So I don't know if you remember just how how many overheating problems you had to deal with when you were selling those.
1: Definitely, when it came to cramming high performance components and laptops back then, you know, they were highly compromised. And spending five grand on a gaming notebook back then definitely did not give you what I would consider is a five grand uh, experience, especially when you compare to what you could get on a desktop at the same time for like two grand, right? So it's almost like The the performance you get for the dollar has vastly improved on notebooks, maybe not to the same extent on on desktops. I mean, yes, it's vastly improved.
0: But But it's almost comparable sometimes, right? Like it's sometimes sometimes you can get an insane laptop deal. Like I saw, what was it? uh, Just the other day, I was looking at laptops because I want to be able to do truly high performance editing on the go now. I found a Razer laptop on eBay for $2,500, you know, not used yet, brand new, that has a 2080 Super and an 8-core processor. And I mean, for $2,500, and I understand it's $1,000 cheaper than it usually is, but that's comparable to a high-end gaming desktop. Definitely, Yeah. Do you remember an example of a high, you know, what you would put in? I put in air quotes, high performance notebook was over 10 years ago that was a decent seller. Like, what were its specs? Do you remember?
1: Yeah. I mean, definitely this was back in the day where, you know, having a gig of RAM or more was considered a lot. Yeah. So at the time, budget notebooks had under a gig of RAM. Mm -hmm. I think most systems would have sort of two to four. And uh, yeah, anything beyond that was considered. Like pretty damn good. Um, but I mean, this is also very much still in the days of 32 bit Windows. <clears <Yeah>. <clears <throat> and the whole shift to 64 bit was starting to happen, but wasn't quite there. So there wasn't always a lot of point going beyond 4 gig of memory. Um, mm-hmm. You know, mechanical hard drives obviously were, were king. Uh, SSDs were still a glimmer on the horizon, but not really there. So Yeah, Yeah, I mean... I mean, they existed, but they were kind of like fawned over
0: for 32 gigabytes as a boot drive or something.
1: Well, I mean, we we, we saw sort of the early eMMC drives in netbooks around that time. You know, that. yeah, lots of them shipped with 16 or 32 gig eMMC drives. Um, But yeah, I mean, it was a big deal to upgrade from the standard 4200 rpm <laughs> drive in your laptop to a 5400 or even the high performance 7200 rpm you know again it's just crazy when you think about like how slow some of these components were in terms of holding back the entire system but there was really nothing you could do without spending uh, frankly, thousands of dollars on something cutting edge like a 64 gig solid state drive from Intel, but I think those only came out uh, a few years later. Like the first consumer SSDs.
0: And, and so, and I, I, I don't mean to overdwell on how bad these components were, but I, I think a lot of people, you know, yeah, I remember the debates and like Tom's Hardware forums of like when SSDs were still un, just ungodly expensive, and they were going. So should I get this $300, like, I think the discussion was, should I get this $300, 10,000 RPM Raptor drive or this $400 SSD that's a fourth the capacity? I can't decide. And like, actually, like, oh, but can I cool the hard drive well enough? And like, you know, like I, th- those were the decisions we were making.
1: Yeah, those things ran hot. And RAID 0 hard drives for a while was like, if you wanted the best performance, you yeah. had to do that, just had to do it.
0: And I remember, and and so going back to laptops, though, that laptop I had, that AutoCAD laptop was like, I'm going to be honest, man, I, I think its battery life was about 70 minutes. <laughs> like even just turning down the brightness all the way, not playing any games, like, it could barely, I don't even know if it could finish an entire movie on the airplane, like if I flew somewhere.
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's been a lot of improvements on that side, although there, there's still notebooks, you know, out there in the market that it's sort of a huge challenge to find that you'll still only get an hour or an hour and a half of battery life on. But you know, I'll say perform- it's
0: rare to find one that's under two now, I think.
1: And now if you're gaming, who
0: knows, but, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I guess I'm referring to those truly desktop in a laptop form factor devices that are just absurd. But when it comes to battery life, you know, there's been huge improvements there. Um, Quite often it's down to, I guess, better efficiency of components. So batteries themselves haven't improved fundamentally, you know, hugely other than the move to the prismatic batteries away from like the coin the coin sort of style where it's like a a barrel, what you call mm. like the old barrel batteries, right? Yeah. Where the the battery cells were literally like a like a barrel shape versus the prismatic ones yep. that are like a flat sort of rectangular shape that can be sort of shaped a little bit into like the nooks and crannies mm-hmm. in a in a notebook. That allowed you know a lot of manufacturers to get more battery capacity in like a thin and light laptop and just more efficiently use the space inside like you know we've seen the same thing with mobile phones um but the the battery capacities you know they they maybe have gone up a little bit because of that, but they fundamentally haven't changed significantly it's it's like i said it's it's the efficiency of all the other components getting better it's switchable graphics actually working you know. It's... <laughs> it's the move to you know the 15 watt u class cpus as the mainstream cpu it used mm-hmm. to not be the case it used to be the h class style 35 45 watt processor that was what you got in every well, laptop well let's
0: back up a little bit then when did you see the start of this switch to more when did you see things start to really change like what year roughly Where, did the did they the laptops start to finally get decent battery lives, and frankly put, just not suck anymore.
1: Yeah, that was back around probably 2011, 2012. Uh, Intel did a big push around the brand new brand they they brought to market called Ultrabook, right? And all the vendors made Ultrabook products and you know there were lots of things that went into an ultrabook but the main thing was that they leveraged these lower power CPUs that had pretty decent performance you know sort of like enough performance for day-to-day tasks but you got amazing battery life in a thin light device and and look there there were ultrabook style devices before mm-hmm. the the whole ultrabook branding that Intel Yeah out.
0: I mean I remember there were a couple of like big standouts that got eight hour battery lives before 2010, but they were like, I think one of them was like $3,000. Like <laughs> that's how much it cost for them to get it to work. I know Sony bios, you know, again, when Vio was actually owned by Sony kind of push that, I feel like before a lot of other people. Um, but wasn't it like basically Ivy bridge when Intel really started pushing this idea of, Hey, these don't need to be that big anymore.
1: Yeah, it was around that sort of Sandy Bridge, Ivy Bridge time that I think they got efficient enough, which is like 2012, basically. Yeah, and performant enough that <clears throat> you can get really good performance out of a a 15 watt CPU. You know, before, you know, you, you'd see the ULV, right? The 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 really low low voltage CPUs or low wattage CPUs, and people would sort of turn their nose up for that because it's like, oh no, those suck. Mm-hmm. You know, those are really bad as performance. I don't want to touch those. And you only saw them in really specialized devices. But then there was this huge flip one year to the next where Intel went from making majority H-class style CPUs with a very small amount in the low low power. Mm-hmm. And that just sort of flipped overnight, right? <clears throat> and that helped drive, I think, notebooks getting thinner and lighter uh, working in conjunction with OEMs. Um, along with the Ultrabook branding, I mean, Intel threw a lot of investment into cooling and pushing um, advancements in notebook uh, cooling, so um, they start designs. melting. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Or at least they they just handle the heat better. And mm-hmm. you know, Intel tends to work really closely with with OEMs. They have tons of engineers, and they have a lot of their own patents and just oodles of money they throw into R and D in terms of development of reference platforms and reference designs that. They can they can share with OEM partners, right? And and uh, and fundamentally, there was a lot of that sort of special source cooling technology that went into the whole ultrabook platform. It wasn't just mm-hmm. a brand; it actually did mean a few a few things that you know it was more efficient because of X Y Z. Um, you know, Intel developed cooling solutions that were thin enough in terms of like the Z mm-hmm. height, right? The, the the actual height of uh, components, like they had to make fans that were thinner than normal, but mm-hmm. could still push enough air. They're officially. crazy thin now in some of these laptops. Like there's,
0: I mean, yeah, it was an NV13T that I somewhat like almost assumed was fanless. But when I looked inside of it, I'm like, oh no, there really are still vents on this laptop that's half an inch thick <laughs> at the max. And yet it it actually has a fan and a vent. It's just literally, you entirely silent and it really is that thin like that actually kind of blew my mind i saw that on macbooks too although some of the newer macbooks don't seem to have nailed cooling as well as i think they used to
1: yeah well that comes down to you know they have apple has a philosophical difference in terms of how they approach you know the the, how to balance cooling versus performance versus heat and noise right Mm. They they greatly value having the quietest notebook as possible. So, you know, mm-hmm. they, they tend to not push their fans as hard. They let their notebooks get a little warmer maybe than other vendors. Um, I think they all have their their different approaches in, in that regard to how how they might handle that. Other vendors might be known for being a bit, you know, maybe noisier in terms of their fans, but they might have better cooling as a result.
0: So, moving forward a little bit, I've got a reader mail I want to work in here um, before we completely forget about talking about batteries. Drita Fulgo's Was there an impact on laptop design after airlines banned the 100 watt hour batteries? That's actually, I think, an interesting question. You know, when I look at batter when I look at laptops, even large ones that have giant batteries, batteries they they tend to be around 90 i don't remember there ever being batteries above 100 watt hours i'm sure there were do do you remember how big they used to get because i honestly don't
1: yeah i don't remember any batteries that were above 100 watt hour like many many years ago it's not to say that there weren't products out there Mm -hmm. um Today, it's it's pretty rare that you'd find anything over 100 watt hours for that obvious reason. There are a couple of really specialized uh, devices that I have seen that do have battery capacity over 100 watt hour, okay. but, but they're not built in, right? They're removable batteries. So mm-hmm. I think they sort of get around that restriction. Because I think that restriction is specifically in regards to built-in batteries. Ah, uh, okay. Um, but also, when, when you're dealing with a battery that's sort of above eighty, ninety watt hours, they're heavy, right? Yeah. You're adding a lot of weight into whatever product it is that that you're talking about. So, you know, you're not going to fit these into a thirteen inch thin and light laptop. Maybe you'll fit it into a thin and light fifteen, um, or even some fourteen note, fourteen inch notebooks. I think have some pretty pretty big batteries mm-hmm. uh, in terms of capacity. But you're adding a lot of weight. And so it always comes back to, again, that balance around fundamentally what's more important. Is it battery life? Do we want to compromise on weight to put a bigger battery in here? Or do we want to hit a specific weight target, right?
0: Yes, and John DeLuca asked a similar question. I don't think I'll read the whole thing, but he's basically asking, um, will laptops finally come out with a larger battery that you can remove? Because that you know he feels like maybe that's holding back battery capacity but but you know i guess let me ask the question this way was were gigantic batteries kind of already on the way out before ones above 100 watt hours were banned
1: well i mean you know if you you go back far enough um when batteries were removable you could have like extended batteries so you normally have like a three or a four cell Uh, built-in, and then you could get like a six or a nine cell extended, but it would literally poke out or or, or, or poke underneath the laptop. They're kind of hilarious Um, uh, because they they just weren't efficiently sort of packaged. Um, I don't think, you know, we're going to see that again because laptop designs have become way more integrated. Mm -hmm. So I don't think you're going to see that sort of modularity of swapping out components. Um, because you can pack more battery capacity in there if you make it sort of non-removable, so to speak. I mean, you can always take the battery out by unscrewing the whole thing, but to make a battery removable, there's all that extra plastic around the battery itself, and then the Mm chassis has to have like a cutout.
0: Yeah, you're kind of wasting a lot of space just to protect the battery that is then removed, aren't you?
1: Yeah, exactly, right? So you're going to get more battery capacity by having it built in and that's why everyone sort of moved in that way mm-hmm. um do we see a removable battery coming in i don't know man uh power banks have gotten way better cheaper uh, that's as well. true
0: as well i have a power bank that's like i think it is about 99 watt hour and it can literally power i think up to 90 watts like When there was a power outage here, I recorded a podcast, actually. I believe it was podcast episode... It was episode 69, which, you know, cue all the jokes, um, where I recorded it with this just giant, flyable, like 90... I'm saying I can bring it on a plane uh, battery that is still strong enough to charge a pretty decent gaming laptop. Not a high-end one, you know, but it's enough, right? In in a world where those exist, I think that's a very good point that power banks kind of make the idea... Yeah, almost ops, not. Maybe not obsolete, but it's obsolescence. You know, it's just not at the forefront of what people want
1: anymore. Yeah, they're a lot more flexible as well. You know, I can charge my phone or my tablet with a power bank. Um, I can charge the power bank separately. I can leave it at home or in the hotel room <clears throat> while I'm out. You can use it for years. If your laptop
0: breaks, you don't need to buy new extra batteries.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it'll work with if it's a USB-C uh, mm. power bank. Then in theory, it should work with sort of any USB C device. So let's get into this a little more specifically. Generally
0: speaking, what are the trade offs you have to deal with most often in laptop design in your job? Like, what are most debates over when it comes to, you know, is it weight versus battery capacity? Or like, you know, talk a bit about what most of the uh, discussions are where you have to make cuts for a end product.
1: Yeah, well, I t- touched on it a bit earlier, and it, it really it comes down to that sort of golden triangle of performance and and uh, cooling and weight, right? I mean, mm-hmm. those those are sort of the three areas, and it's it's always a case of trying to find the best balance. Um, a good way of looking at it is if it's a thin and light laptop that's for commercial use you don't need a graphics card you care Mm -hmm. about having you know long battery life you care about having a clear screen but you don't necessarily want like a big 4k high resolution display um if you're just doing like spreadsheets or email because you know that'll unnecessarily suck down battery life Mm -hmm. um you know, so it's all about finding the right balance of components for the, the style of user I guess uh, for the device you know the decisions that would go into a gaming notebook are vastly different of course than a, a thin and light laptop for like a, you know someone who's out in the field uh, all the time who just needs to do uh, email and, and spreadsheets and, and that sort of thing.
0: You know, one thing that I find interesting is as APUs became a bigger and a bigger thing from AMD and, you know, you would say from Intel as well, I thought we'd see more and more the removal of the discrete graphics card, but I'm noticing in mid-range laptops more and more so, I guess, what do you call them now? They call them like high, like, you know, performance ultra books, or I think, a term used a lot now is creator laptops, which aren't strictly gaming laptops, but they are basically designed and look like an Ultrabook. But they managed to shove a 2060 in there. And that's a trend I'm seeing more and more and more right now. I I don't know if you'd comment on that at all, you know, like how even laptops that probably weren't designed for gaming first are starting to get decent graphics cards.
1: So a, a word that I don't see used much anymore, maybe it's very 90s thing, or early thousands, is uh, multimedia, right? So, I mean, that's what you'd used to call, I want a laptop for multimedia use, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Which was kind of saying, I want to do all the day-to-day stuff, but I want a bit more grunt for video editing or some games or something like that. And, yeah, I I, I think there is that sort of mid-range where, you know, it's like uh, I want a laptop configuration that has enough grunt to do video editing and maybe a bit of light gaming. Um, I think people need to keep in mind: gaming absolutely flogs whatever hardware you, 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 <laughs> yeah. you do. You, you do and everything right. in the hardware, everything yeah, processor, graphics it's card. One of the most stressful workloads outside of a, a artificial benchmark to run on 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 PC hardware. Gaming, as you said, it, it touches everything: it touches the I/O, touches yeah, the Yeah, that's right. And we're seeing the with CPU. the new
0: consoles, it's even going to start probably. Really throttle like uh, thrashing I/O and solid state drives that are going to suck even more power now.
1: Yeah, yeah exactly right. So th- there is still a space for for laptops where maybe they don't even have a twenty sixty class card. Maybe they have a sixteen sixty Ti or something like mm-hmm. that. Again, it's like good enough discrete graphics for maybe Adobe or something that might leverage it uh, or DaVinci. But you know, it's it's going to have an i seven or an i nine in there because Fundamentally, the CPU is still maybe more important for that that style of user. So yeah, the, the creator or creative um, mm-hmm. classification that I have seen used, I'd say that's sort of the new multimedia classification. Yeah, I mean, you've got NVIDIA that have the, what is it, the studio? RTX yeah. studio? Yeah, so that to me is sort of like the, I work in you know, 3D modeling or whatever, but I still need uh, some some gaming. Features, right? Um, and I mean that—that that can be another whole rabbit hole around sort of GeForce versus Quadro and different yeah. use cases there. But uh, you know, you get what you pay for as well, particularly on a laptop.
0: Well, I think one thing we're finding too with this new, you know, or what you would say is reinventing <laughs> multimedia um, uh, class of laptops is as CPUs get more powerful and more efficient, you go. We've got some extra space in here, frankly, right? Like people want typically a 13, 14, or 15 inch screen, and they want you to remove the bezels to save space. But once you do that, and once you make it thin, it's like, well, you're not really going to make it thinner than half, you know, than like about half an inch, because at half an inch, no, we're, I mean, like, I think I got a ruler right here. I mean, you're getting to the point where you could compromise, yeah, the structural integrity of the laptop if you make it any thinner, right? and so you have this extra space now the cpus use 15 watts and yet they have eight cores and they run at three to four gigahertz there's room for a 25 watt graphics card right that we didn't used to have room but now we do and i think it's pretty obvious that if you have two laptops i mean how much does the silicon really cost i mean i know do-it-yourself people pay like one to three hundred dollars for a mid-range graphics card I'm telling you in reality these things especially the smaller die ones like a 1650 those graphics cards probably cost like less than 100 bucks to make and if you have a lap, two laptops for 1200 but one's 1300 and you can say GTX graphics included I think that's just a gigantic selling point and you have the room to fit it right
1: Definitely no I I don't disagree with that and I think we're sort of on the cusp of having really really good integrated graphics so you know mm-hmm. you've got Tiger Lake with the Xe graphics, and from what we're seeing with benchmarks, early benchmarks, that seems like it should be pretty performant. It sort of does beg the question: Why do you need an entry-level graphics card anymore um, in in a in a sort of a low to mid-range laptop mm-hmm. if if you know you don't have huge graphics demands? Because it's it's a quote unquote or not quote unquote but you know air quotes free, right? It comes with the CPU. You know, and you see what AMD is doing on on uh, on Renoir as well in terms of the the inbuilt Vega graphics is no slouch either. No. it's not too bad, especially if you go up the stack and you you um you know you, you get the the more performance skews. That integrated graphics is sort of kind of good enough for 1080p gaming for most mm-hmm. games right now. You know? <laughs> yeah, right now. Oh, yeah, let's see what. Wait happens. Wait for the next
0: gen to really get kicked off. Exactly. And that's the only thing I'll say. I mean, look, the high-end Vega SKUs are stronger than the launch PS4, you know, so, or at least comparable. (laughs) However, it's about to be a last-gen console. Let me get into some reader mails that kind of relate to laptop design here. So H177 writes in and he says, now that we aren't traveling as much, everyone I've noticed is really starting to miss having four USB ports on their work laptops versus thinness and lightness. Can you please give us our USB ports back? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I think the, the industry is slowly marching towards USB-C ubiquity, right? We're not there yet. We're still in that sort of messy, painful transition period. And let's just say that the, the USB consortium hasn't brought out the greatest branding around all of the permutations of uh, USB um, you kind of <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a, random
0: what they name them. Because like, what, 3.1 is like twice as fast as 3. So why isn't it called
1: USB 4? I found that a little odd. It's horrific, right? So, so when you look at laptops and you want to try and make something as thin and light as possible, because it seems like fundamentally everyone wants devices to get Thinner and lighter, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's the industry we've got. Uh, so that's the direction that the industry all things
0: is going. considered. If you can just make it more portable, that's good, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Battery life is good enough. Performance for day to day stuff, it's good enough. Uh, you know, gaming is something different. But you know, if if that's all you need, then thinner and lighter is is welcomed. So when you get to a certain thickness of a laptop, you you need to start making decisions around compromises, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a reason why we don't have VGA ports and Ethernet (laughs) ports in laptops anymore, right? So not only do some of those standards, they're kind of dead, um, but also you you physically can't fit them in anymore. And when you look at a lot of laptops that are are super thin, there's only enough room for a USB-C port or Thunderbolt. Mm-hmm. right now some vendors have done clever stuff so hp on their specter laptops have like a little drop down hinge for their USB A yeah, ports on a couple of specters cool that's really cool i don't know how durable that hinge would be over you know many many years um but th- th- that's a cool i'll design, let you right? know if
0: one breaks so far no problem okay After a few okay years. fingers crossed right and i'm but... tough on my stuff <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, so you know, when you start getting to a certain thickness, you need to make decisions around what do you want to keep in and what do you want to remove. Now, th- all those comments are more in regards to consumer devices. When you look at commercial products, whether it's from Dell or HP or Lenovo, um, they all have USB-A ports still, as well as mm-hmm. Type-C and HDMI, and some of them still have Ethernet. And quite often, you know, they'll have Type C for power, so it's so it's like they've found, I think, a good middle ground for Mm -hmm. commercial users because they absolutely still want USB A. You know, it's fundamental to. I think you have to include a couple USB As, just you
0: have to. I mean, because you know, it it sucks so much when you just can't plug in something.
1: Yeah, you know, when when I've got maybe a colleague that has a notebook that only has Type C ports, I always say, "Ah, welcome to dongle life." Mm-hmm. I say while while I hand him you know one of several various dongles that he needs to plug like a USB uh, key in or a display in or whatever right mm-hmm. <clears throat> so like I said we're we're still in that sort of messy in between transitional phase um, but we're getting there right more and more peripherals are coming out with USB C ports you know more hard drives more mice. Even headphones and and, and phones themselves u- are using USB-C, particularly yeah. to charge. So it's funny we haven't seen, um, you know, this whole revolution with all peripherals with USB-C. So there's, you know, try and find a USB-C speaker that isn't like a crappy travel speaker. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. That hasn't happened yet. Um, mm. You know, so I think there's certain categories that they still need to 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 get USB-C ports built in, and you're going to have other areas like like AV, right, home theater setups. Mm. They're going to continue using HDMI, right? Mm -hmm. Um, They're not going to move to USB-C, maybe for peripherals to connect in, but that's fundamentally not going to change. So you know, it is. I think there's a good question around like how long is it until we uh, fully in a USB-C world i don't know i think the transition is going to be 10 years Where maybe yeah halfway there so <laughs> you know yeah i agree usb a still has a place and uh if you find the right laptop you'll still have usb a ports but definitely some vendors have been very aggressive in removing usb a i think dell's xps is a good example where they they dropped usb a i think a year or two ago yeah, They're, they're pretty much but you're them, you're like, saying,
0: can we get these back? And you're saying, look, despite people maybe using their laptops at home more often now, they're not coming back. The trend is going to continue, right?
1: Yeah, well, I think once they're gone, they they're gone. So sorry. Um, the answer would be, unfortunately, a dongle, right? Or- yeah, which
0: is annoying. But once, I guess, I'll say this. Once you have a decent dongle, especially with like the latest USB, like three point ones or three, you know, three point one Gen twos, or I think that is actually what it's called. What a ridiculous name! Um, and um, you know, thunderbolts. One USB C dongle can power like four USB A's, an Ethernet port, and an HDMI. So, you know, I mean, I think you just buy that once and use it on all your laptops, right? Definitely, but
1: I mean, that kind of brings us full circle to the docking question because you know those those docks that you plug in the one cable and that gives you power video audio data all over one connection and that connects to all your peripherals so then it's like maybe I don't want lots of ports on my laptop I want the thinnest and lightest thing possible but when I need to have that desktop like experience or plug into all my peripherals I have a dock that everything's already plugged into that has all the legacy ports and connections on it I mean, you can almost call USB-A a a legacy-style port in Mm. in some ways, right, when when you're looking forward.
0: Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. I mean, moving on to another question here. Seamus writes in and says, Hi, Tom and guest. Do you have any suggestions as to why laptop screens seemingly skipped 1440p on their way to 4K, despite how common 1440p monitors are? I feel 1440p is pretty much made for laptop size screens, so I find it just odd that I don't see a lot of manufacturers using them. We always seem to have to choose between 1080p and 4K.
1: Yeah, I, I think that the answer here, and I don't think there's any special insight, I think a lot of people can sort of work this out themselves. Marketing. I mean, having that 4K sticker slapped on the box, it's it can be powerful for uh, a lot of consumers out there. And um, you know, the industry, 4K is a selling point. 1080p or 1440p is not a selling point. You know, look at the confusion over 1440p with the Xbox Series S uh, unveil, right? A lot of people don't understand that. That's a still a pretty good resolution, but because it's not 4K, it's oh, it's crap. You know, it's not what I want. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> I, I kind of agree. 1440p is probably the sweet spot for, you know, 14, 15-inch screen sizes. Um, If you want sort of like a one to one uh, pixel scaling Mm -hmm. or 100% desktop scaling, yeah, 1440p would be great. You know, there might be 1440p displays coming in the pipeline. Uh, You know, I think we also need to remember that OEMs are limited by the component manufacturers. Mm -hmm. There might not actually be anyone that makes 1440p screens in volume in the sizes you want. So, I've seen some 1440p displays in gaming notebooks, particularly high refresh rate sure. gaming notebooks like 15 inches um but when you when you look at 17 or well, the few 17-inch notebooks that are on the market, they're pretty much 1080p mm. or 4K because nobody makes a 1440p 17-inch panel. Right, um, you might be able to find one or two examples out there, but then, you know, you, you start getting into the discussions around supply chain and what's the capacity of that supplier, and how long are they going to be making those panels and is there a second source that i can get those panels from yeah. in case that supplier has an issue right these are all sort of supply chain questions that feed into decisions around what panel do we use um, they might be more expensive as well right so costs uh, you know over time come down on on components and
0: that's what i keep trying to explain to people too cuz i get into arguments is well you i believe you listen to my podcasts from time to time and so you probably heard me do this like Trying to explain to people that you have to understand, there's 1080p, and that was the gold standard for like a decade, frankly, right? In many ways, it still is. And then there's 4K. It seems to me that, indeed, 1440p has become a fairly common standard in PC gaming on desktop. But that's basically it, right? The next standard is 4K, and that's that. And so if you have a bunch of manufacturers all targeting the next standard that they know will be the next standard for the next 20 years, it's probably the same price to put a 4K display as it is a 1440p in a laptop, guys. Like when I look at gaming monitors, even, and this is something I also keep trying to explain, it's like when I look at the cost of a 4K display and a 1440p, usually it's arbitrary that the 4K is more. It probably doesn't cost much more to make honestly like it really doesn't like i don't know if you can touch on that at all like i mean everyone makes 4k or 1080p so you know that's kind of the answer isn't it
1: and you got to look at where investment dollars would be poured you know to what you're saying around what 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 people are targeting Mm -hmm. as maybe the next standard in the future um if i'm a manufacturer or, or a component supplier it's, well, where's the future demand going to be, right? Well, mm-hmm. What are people going to buy? It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way, but still, it's, you know, I'd be putting money into 4K R&D development, make 4K panels thinner, make them brighter, make them use less power. You know, I might not necessarily put that same investment into a 1440p or a 1080
0: Yeah, and I mean, like, I think the argument you would make is, all right, so this is a 15-inch screen, you're like, 4K, I don't need that high of a resolution. Then do you need more than 1080p? Like, to use your own argument against you, right?
1: Yeah, well, that's where, you know, when you look at the commercial products, most commercial notebooks are 1080p. You can build to order a 4K or a 1440p screen option, but they're pretty much all 1080p because that's good enough for you know, office style tasks, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I said, 40 uh, 4K is a great marketing uh, uh, sort of almost like a brand for consumers for them to spend more money into buying a more expensive um, configuration. Whereas businesses look at that extra cost and go, Ah, uh, no, thank you. You know, our cost per head budget is maybe a thousand dollars and we don't want to spend that extra $200 on a 4K screen because we don't see the business benefit in doing And if so. you're
0: going to save money, right? You're just going to save money. You're not going to say, oh, but maybe we get the one in the middle. It's like either we want to mm-hmm. give them a huge resolution bump or we're going to give, I mean, like what's enough in 1080p is enough. Gosh, Reesey! why does Windows 10 Professional have to be so expensive? Don't listen to that, nerd. Listen to me. You can get all the great Windows and gaming keys you need at CDK Offers. I have a plan. Go to cdkoffers.com to get all the Windows Professional and Microsoft Office keys you need. And games as well. Add them to your cart, and you can even apply one of them City Slicker promotional codes like Die for 3% off software and broken silicon for 25% off all Windows codes. I do have an account on this website, and it is ultra easy to use. Just submit your order, use PayPal credit card or Bitcoin, and go to Windows website to download Microsoft Professional. One more time, that's go to cdkoffers.com. They are a fantastic sponsor of Moore's. Law is dead. Use offer code shrink for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows products. Now, back to the show. So let me see here. So DJ5K writes in and he says, it seemed like basically all laptop OEMs were sleeping on Renoir until it launched and subsequently went viral due to its high reviews. Why was that? And what has happened afterwards? um, Is our OEMs jumping on the bandwagon now? Or like basically he's just asking why did it seem like, you know, no one was ready for the high demand of Renoir? I don't know if you can speak to that at all.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, a lot of people are asking the same thing. Um, I'd say AMD probably doesn't have as many strong established relationships with as many vendors as maybe Intel does. I mean, that would be a starting point. I, I, you know, I can't speak to why certain companies made the decision to to take it up or, or, or not for that matter. Um, but it, I think that's a good observation. And I think based on what we're seeing... Considering the performance you get out of it, you know you might see more designs from more manufacturers next year leveraging AMD CPUs. I think that you know a good question would be, what's AMD charging the vendors? You know, are mm. they more expensive or less expensive than Intel? Right? Um, what kind of extra support might Intel give? You know, we spoke about ultrabooks and. You know, Intel put tons of R&D into cooling solutions for the the whole new category of ultrabooks. You know, Intel was literally trying to push the entire industry uphill in terms of pushing Mm -hmm. and advancing designs. Um, You know, AMD might not have that same level of support or investment. So, you know, I think there's a lot of questions beyond just why didn't they choose that chip? Because a lot of the products that you see that come to market... They're in development for years, right? Mm-hmm. It takes years to bring something to market yes you you can bring something to market within a year. you can rush it um I think one of the most famous examples was the original iPod. I mm. think that was conceptualized and brought to market within the same year, but that was wow. fundamentally a a far more <laughs> simple device <laughs> yes. right yeah uh computers are horrifically complex products and I think people don't always appreciate you know that it's not an appliance it's it's a very high end electrical highly engineered device that has all sorts of things that need to happen for it to be brought to market. Um, not only is all the, the development that happens on the the hardware and software side to the drivers and everything else you got regulatory stuff you know headaches you got to deal with right you got to you got to get lots of rubber stamps mm. uh, uh, paid for and, and done. And that takes time. So you can't rush a lot of this stuff. And, you know, this is why I, I think, you know, you might see more AMD products in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would uh, Honestly, I'd be surprised if, if you didn't see more AMD SKUs from more manufacturers, considering the performance that you're getting with Renoir and, and I think Tiger Lake H is sort of, we're yet to see what we'll get with that. But... Yeah. These, a lot of these decisions are made years in advance. So quite often the OEMs don't know what the actual performance of right. these of the hardware is going to be. They kind of have to aim for like a particular target and you need to sort of work to that and whittle down when you get closer and closer. Okay. You know, it's using less power than we thought, so we we can have better cooling, or maybe we can, Mm. you know, bring that down a bit and save some money on the cooling and et cetera, et cetera, right? Like, there's a lot of considerations that need to be made very early on.
0: Well, and I think, you know, this is, you know, a talking point I have there. Why is it so bloody hard to get an AMD laptop? I mean, I think there is some room for people to complain when they look at the efficiency advantage Renoir truly has. Over Intel's offerings right now, like Tiger Lake's made up for some of it in some use cases, but still overall, Renoir, uh, just speaking personally, I think makes Intel look like an absolute joke, right, in the laptop space. And yet, almost, I mean, a lot of uh, like, if you go to Razor's website, they only have Intel CPUs. Still, there's a lot of OEMs that I would argue effectively, effectively are only selling Intel. I know they may have a couple token. AMD offerings, right? But like, I think before we get into that, I do want to point out to people it is way better than it was a few years ago. Like, four years ago, even though I thought AMDs, even though they were, you know, part of the bulldozer, you know, lineage of CPUs, some of their APUs overall were really impressive for the overall performance you got. And I remember there were some you just could not get. Like, I remember the top excavator APU. I could not find a single laptop that was worth anything that was at all good, that had it. Like, literally any. And then when Zen 1 and Zen Plus came out, no, you can find them. There were AMD laptops. They were just rare. And I think with Renoir, it's like, no, I'm. there's options. There are options now. It's just, it's not just how good the processor is and then they throw it into a a chassis. What I want to talk to you kind of specifically is like, how much of the design of the laptop isn't just the time, but the
1: amount of support Intel gives OEMs, right? Yeah, well, uh, you know, they, they do give some support. So again, like I said, when you look at things like the whole Ultrabook uh, initiative, you know, Intel was pretty public in saying that they've developed all kinds of new cooling solutions to to help OEMs, you know, reach these uh, thickness targets because you had to be under a certain thickness to be classed as an ultrabook, mm-hmm. and you know they they always have this kind of initiative. Ultrabook stack stuck around for a long time, and then we had, um, you know, Project Athena, right? Which right. Sort of the same thing in a way, but it wasn't. It wasn't, it, it wasn't marketed sort of publicly, but it was like Intel's rubber stamping of, you know. If we give Athena certification, it means it's thin, it's light, it's good, good performance and it gets long battery life, you know, and, and, you know, potentially they may have had a hand in, in the development of those products. Maybe not, but, um, I think we've got, you know, the the, the same thing happening just around the corner is the whole Evo platform, which is just mm. Athena 2.0. Right. But, it, but I think a bit more, bit more obvious in terms of branding. Um, yeah, so uh, it seems that Intel has a bit more resources and support for for their partners, maybe more than AMD, right? So, you know, if you're a big company and you're developing products and, you know, are you going to choose the vendor that might have chips that are 10% faster on paper and benchmarks, but mm. uh, doesn't have the engineering support or R&D, or maybe doesn't have the same level of supply? Or are you going to go with old faithful, right? That you've got established good relationships with regular supply cadence. People Um, whose
0: names and numbers you have that you've been working with at Intel to design laptops for years, you can call them and say, hey, how would we handle this, right? Because I think you said this to me before, and I think I've heard another OEM talk to me about how Intel will literally go from the ground up and say, hey, here's a cooling solution. We helped engineer for this type of processor we have coming out and we'll help you design it into your laptop, HP or Dell or Lenovo, right? Whereas sometimes AMD shows up and they'll help, but they don't have the whole thing thought out. It's like, hey, can you put this into this laptop you already have? And that takes a lot more money to just put that in. And then you don't have I mean let's be honest for now still the intel name carries weight right i mean
1: oh absolutely um and you know you, you've you seen the same thing with nvidia with uh the i think it was the studio rtx laptops you know that that was kind of also a platform where they were going to help oems with you know more advanced cooling solutions for the high-end discrete graphics in a light notebook And that was sort of, uh, to me, it was just Ultrabook 2.0, but for for graphics, right, Mm. Um, in terms of the same approach. So, yeah, I, I see online a lot of people say, oh, you know, uh, Asus cripples, you know, the AMD skew of this laptop versus the Intel because the cooling is the same, or it's worse, or whatever. It's like, mm-hmm. well, they didn't, they didn't, they don't go out to sabotage their own product. They didn't try know. to. <laughs> yeah, don't. Let's not be absurd here. You know, they, the last thing they want is is customers complaining and logging tech support calls that their laptop isn't working as well as it should be, right? So they're going to make a product that's capable, but to what extent, you know, they're going to have resources to to put into the design? I don't know. That's, That's a good question. You know, if we see more and more amazing AMD products come out, then you'll have more and more vendors interested in utilizing AMD platforms. Because Ultimately, it's what the consumer wants. And if the consumers Mm -hmm. are going to turn around and say, we want AMD products, and I'm not talking about the vocal minority, right, that always want the latest and greatest. I'm talking Mm -hmm. about big businesses that will turn around. I think you're starting to see that now too. Yeah, there's definitely, I think, uh, more acceptance in the... Let's just say, compared to a few years ago, where AMD was always seen as like the cheap entry-level option and that was it, it was Intel or bust right Mm -hmm. now. Now I think a lot more organizations are at least, they may be open to consideration Mm -hmm. around, you know, they might say, well, um, you know, the old adage, nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. I think the same thing applies today with uh, PCs, right? Nobody ever got fired for procuring Intel. You know, it's, it's the tried and true product. So what, what why change? Why introduce uh, risk in terms of a, a fundamental change in vendor or product?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, the way I see it is I think, especially in the mid-range gaming laptop space, you're just going to see AMD take a ton of market share because the most vocal people for the mo- best performance and best performance for the price are gamers, especially mid-range gamers, right? But I think, what you're going to see is a kind of mix of both over the next year and the ultra high end simply because Intel's brand name with a lot of gamers still carries weight. Even if maybe I would argue sometimes those gamers have no clue what they're talking about when they recommend Intel (laughs) the high end. Um, And I, I think, yeah, I think in the low end, the fact is Intel has this advantage in Scale, where they own their own foundries, and they and I've seen the numbers like sometimes OEMs are getting i sevens for like fifty bucks each, right like they're a lot cheaper than they are on newegg by the way, guys um and so you know it says i seven there's an Intel sticker, and you're right, it opens word, and I don't think anyone's complaining with whichever processor it has um but I, I do want to kind of move on to a sort of a final leg of this conversation here. I'm, Started off with this reader mail question. Luca writes in and says, Why do so many vendors use crappy thermal paste when they spend so much money on all these other components, including the cooling system in a laptop? I mean, MX4 thermal paste can remove 10 degrees Celsius at times compared to the cheaper stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I can't directly answer that because I'm, I'm not a thermal engineer. Uh, and, you know, I don't have mm. full insight into you know how those decisions get made but i think that 5 to 10 degrees i mean that's probably a very niche situation maybe there was really crappy applied thermal paste in the very beginning um and look there's tons of guides online that say oh if you remove the standard thermal paste and use this you know aftermarket stuff you can get 2 or 3 or even maybe 5 degrees better sure right absolutely but you know, I think you've got to think about how much that stick thermal paste costs you five bucks, 10 bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, I think his argument m- would be though, isn't this, get,
0: you know, a $2,000
1: laptop though. Yeah, sure. Um, But at the end of the day, it, decisions around costs are made on every component. Right. So um I, I again, I can't speak to th- that mm. exact example, but I think, you know, I'm not saying vendors cheap out, but quite often it can come down to the quality control on the production line at the ODM, right? In terms of how is the thermal place uh, applied, maybe they're doing a crappy job of it. Um, You know, we've definitely seen that with some products. I think there was some Xbox 360s that had really bad uh, applied thermal paste and it led to all sorts of issues.
0: So I believe they use like a thermal pad. Or something like if I remember correctly, like one of the fixes for the 360 that would sometimes work was they would say, take it apart, remove this thermal pad, and then add thermal paste and put pennies on it here. I, I do remember watching that video. Yeah. Keep in mind, this was like 15 years ago that I watched this video. <laughs> so yeah. uh, my memory is a little fuzzy.
1: Uh, one, I guess, one aspect on this is uh, the recent PS5 teardown, where they've utilized liquid metal. Yeah, um, and it's that's an certainly decision, not high margins
0: know? on there, you know. So if they want, if they could save a few dollars, they would, right?
1: Yeah, but I mean, they were kind of very open in saying that they spent years engineering a solution that would work with liquid metal, because uh, mm-hmm. there's all sorts of problems around liquid metal where it's it's awesome but you know it 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 has issues over time um Mm -hmm. and it looks like you know they've been able to mitigate that with that little lip around uh the area they've applied and 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 a few other sort of engineering tricks and all i'm just saying is i'm quietly crossing my fingers behind my back i mean i I trust sony have very clever engineers working for them but let's see how that holds up. very, very long-term situations. But, you know, the, 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 this stuff is really tricky. So there's a reason why you don't see liquid metal used in mass-produced electronics. And hopefully, this achievement that Sony's done with the PS5 might change that, you know, fundamentally for the industry. Because, you know, quite often, a vendor will come up with a clever design. And mm-hmm. a few years later, you'll start to see that proliferate through to other products and other vendors.
0: Well, I'm sure they put thought into it. I mean, they want to sell over 100 million of these. So I don't think, right, (laughs) they would have done it willy-nilly if they thought it was going to break. I think... exactly, And I think just the standards have changed, too, for some of these high-volume devices. People expect their stuff to work now. Like, if you think about, especially older consoles, and we put up with some really shitty reliability, didn't we? (laughs) Compared to now. Like, my God, everything used to break, in my opinion. Like, it, it's just ridiculous. Um, An example I want to give, though, about the thermal paste that I think a lot of people might miss is... So, when you put this great... And I have MX4 thermal paste, right? When you put this thermal paste on your personal device, you unscrew the laptop very carefully. You know, you probably heat it up first, right? And then you unscrew it delicately, take off this heat sink, oh, use alcohol, be very careful. Here's the bare dye. And then you'd very, you know, carefully and delicately put on this perfect dot of MX4 and then close it up and seal it just perfectly. Yet, you know, Dell or HP is producing millions of laptops, right? On an assembly line. There's not... Typically, someone, there hand-assembling this super delicately. Um, so what you have to ask yourself is, well, maybe this thermal paste is better. How well does a giant vat of it, not a little syringe in your hand, a giant vat of it keep over hours on an assembly line? How easy is it to transport? Does MX4 last very long before you apply it once you've opened it? Can this take being on an assembly line and sitting in a vat for hours making millions of laptops? And then also the machinery to make like a newer XPS or something. They're using a lot of the same machinery they've been using for five years. So liquid metal would be better, but is that on the assembly line? How much does it cost to upgrade that component on the assembly line? I think you touched on it, right? Sony's doing this now, they're putting in the effort. I wouldn't be surprised when you look at these vapor chambers going into laptops and stuff, if they're starting to do this and plan for this as well, it just takes years to implement it in an assembly line situation. And it's very different from when you're delicately taking apart your favorite laptop at home over an hour. Right.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And and it's not Dell or HP. It's, it's also the ODMs, you know, Foxconn, compound Winstron, right? Like, You've got to work with these guys to, mm-hmm. to, to get that stuff rolled out. And they, they are their own businesses. You know, they might not necessarily have the capability or they might be able to do it, but not the way you want or whatever, right? So, yeah, there's a lot of challenges that goes into why not just use better thermal paste, right? I mean, it's like, yeah. yep, that's, that's, that's a whole box of, uh, of worms to open up there.
0: Well, so, and let's continue this then. What else do you see changing? You know, we talked about in depth how crappy laptops used to be, how over time there was this focus on, you know, U-series CPUs over H, better battery life, because the batteries can fit into more nooks and crannies, and because the components are more efficient, you know, high-resolution screens, SSDs, Mike. I think for the past few years, laptops, you're pretty good if you get a used laptop from three years ago. It works pretty well now. And that certainly, man, if you got a 2009 laptop instead of a 2012, it was was a lot worse. Like, where do you see laptops changing over the
1: next, I don't know, three to five years? I don't think they will change that much, frankly, right? So when, when you look at industries, and they sort of go through periods of rapid innovation, and then they plateau off for sometimes a long time, sometimes it might be a short time before the next sort of big innovation. We haven't really seen a lot of changes fundamentally for probably the last five years or so. I'm not sure that we really will for the next five years other than everything getting thinner, lighter, Mm -hmm. more efficient, more powerful. The laptop itself isn't gonna go away, right?
0: I agree. I think that's a design we like, you know.
1: Right. Yeah. Tablets came and went, you know, we thought tablets were going to demolish laptops and and tablet was going to be the new mobile sort of device form factor. Didn't happen. Right. And I'll speak. I, I like laptops.
0: I like the compact kind of ultrabook netbook design where. Hey, guess what? If you close it and you drop it, it's protected. The screen isn't exposed. When you open it, you can put a touchscreen on a laptop. And frankly, I think it's almost as easy to just carry around an ultra light laptop that's opened up as it is a tablet. Just use the touchscreen and then you have a keyboard sitting there. You know, I really, I agree. I, I think laptops will remain the standard and they will just maybe fold and have a touchscreen, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, we've seen, you know, laptops do interesting things like have 360 hinges. Um, or, or the likes of Microsoft have made sort of detachable style products, uh, I guess, better, more refined. But when you look at really what sells in volume, it's the humble laptop. And that mm-hmm. ain't going away anytime soon. Even, you know, 360 style designs, I don't think that's going to take over. And become the standard form factor, right? Because well, and that, I think glass, you find, right?
0: Even if you can fold it open and use a touchscreen, like if it weighs five pounds, I don't want to hold that in one hand.
1: Right? Yeah, and and that adding that glass in adds weight, adds mm-hmm. cost. How many people? Okay, so you know the, the three hundred and sixty style uh, form factor. How many people do you see in the wild? Uh, you know, depending where you are, obviously pre COVID, right? In the wild. Actually folding it over and using it, or or bonus points for folding it over and using it with a stylus. Right? How many people do you actually see (laughs) using that? Those look so
0: nice in advertisements, though.
1: (laughs) It it looks great. You know, it's it's. I'm always reminded of the Steve Jobs quote around the we don't sell the sausage. You know, we sell the sizzle. Or there's a general sort of marketing philosophy around sell
0: the steak, sell the sizzle.
1: Yeah, selling the idea. Right, and. The idea of using a pen to take notes and one note and do all these fancy things, it sounds great, but I don't think many people really do it. I've tried really mm-hmm. hard several times to to use a a 360 style device with a stylus, and it just doesn't work for me, right? Some people it does, sure, but I think they're significantly in the minority. So you know, Microsoft have done such a great job around um, pen and handwriting recognition. It's almost freakish, um, you know, how terrible my handwriting is and how mm-hmm. well it'll pick it up. Um, but I, I don't want to say it's, it's all for waste. It isn't. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty cool technology, but I just don't see that shift happening, right? I think the humble laptop with the touchpad and the keyboard is going to stick around screens will get better webcams will get better they'll get thinner i was going to touch lighter. on that
0: right luis correa writes in and says when are we going to get decent webcams finally and it, it's really insane you know when i look at laptops uh, for the channel for mobile editing that'd be nice if it had like a at least a 1080p even or 1440p 4k camera so i could record a video without having to get out a nicer one but the fact is they're all 720p still then the highest i've seen is 1080p i'm i'm sure i don't you don't need to comment i'm sure there's someone who put a 4k camera in there but i i can't find them in any of the mainstay devices you know so i I do think that's some low-hanging fruit that really needs to be improved on soon
1: it's, yeah, I mean, it's it's challenging, right? It's actually almost more challenging than a smartphone because when mm. you see how thin uh, some of the LCD panels are or the or bezels those, around the for the laptop, yeah. yeah, right? That's like half the thickness of a mobile phone. And you got to think though, yeah. there's also the, the LCD panels in there. You've got maybe a sheet of Gorilla Glass as well. Um, you need room to route all the, the ribbon cables and all that. So it's like, okay, we've only got this many mils of millimetres of space that we have mm-hmm. to deal with, you know, and it's really tough to 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 put a decent webcam in that. So I think there's a couple of vendors out there. Uh, HP has just announced their new Elite Books. I want to say just announced. It was like a week, uh, a couple of months ago, I think. Mm-hmm. I think they have 1080p webcams now. Uh, Microsoft Surface products have had. 1080p webcams for quite a while. I think they've been a leader in that. But again, Mm -hmm. you know, a Surface Pro is a tablet. It's rather thicker, right? right? So So it's easy to put a better webcam in that. Um, But yeah, I think pretty much everyone else is stuck to 720p because you can only fit a certain style of sensor. And there's been advancements in shrinking the current sensors down. Mm -hmm. But I think it's really challenging to put a 1080p or a 4K camera into that smaller a spot. And yeah, I agree it's low hanging fruit. Well, but
0: because of working from home though, people are realizing they finally want those good cameras, right?
1: Well, it's it's shifting in priorities, right? Suddenly the webcam is really important now, you know, when it was just a nice to have for many many years. So, you know, the question is for for future notebook development, do we invest in better webcams? Do we continue to just, you know, the current webcams are sort of good enough maybe for what people need versus maybe what they want. Uh, you know, these are considerations that will feed into, I think, decisions around notebook designs in the coming years. But, you know, the vendors can't change on on a dime. When you look at the shift that we've had with COVID and the changing in, in usage and, and buying behavior, vendors can't just ship out mm. a better webcam in six months. It doesn't work that way. you know, we might But you do see, think they're coming, though, because of this? I think it's inevitable. Just like it's inevitable that you're going to see a lot of other advancements in terms of battery capacity or, or, or weight or performance, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, webcams are going to improve. We know there's better webcams out there. It's just a case of making them small enough, right? It's always everything's doable in terms of engineering challenges. It's just how much money are you willing to pay?
0: Yeah. And well and like in ter- and so it sounds like you're saying you expect a little bit better here and there on everything but no fundamental shifts really in the next 5 years, right?
1: Yeah, I I can't see, you know, any uh any massive changes. I mean, the whole point with big innovations is that it's also kind of a bit unforeseen or unexpected yeah you know that's true people didn't really expect the first ipad to be such a good product and nope, everyone of made fun of it what it went out to. you know there were lots of jokes about the name mm. uh, ipad what is it you know a hygiene product but everybody quickly <laughs> forgot about that when they started using the device and realizing just like how good it was and you fast forward to today apple owns the tablet market because android tablet's Kind of suck. Some of the hardware is good, but the software is garbage. You just angered garbage. a bunch
0: of people listening. I'm sure.
1: I, I'm sure I did, right? But at the end of the day, numbers don't lie. You know why are majority of tablets sold out their iPads, right? Mm-hmm. It's because people prefer the the end user experience around that device, regardless of what software it is or whatever. It's just it's a better user experience fundamentally, right? Now. That's different with mobile phones. You know, Androids mm-hmm. come a long way. I think it's up to the up to you whether you want iOS or Android. Mm-hmm. There's pluses and minuses on both of them. But yeah, when you when you look at these areas where there's been big innovation, it's it's really interesting to see. So what's the next big thing? I have no clue. I can't wait for someone to bring out, you know, if you've watched Westworld, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And so, you know, that kind of foldable device that it's a phone yeah. and then it's sort of, you can fold it well, out. See, but now toddler. I'm starting
0: to question that, right? It's funny you bring that up because I remember, again, right, If you, I, I've, I've said this diatribe a million times. If you were to ask me five years ago, you know, let's say it's 2015, I'd be like, oh, yeah, by the early 2020s, we'll have self-driving cars and foldable phones and blah, blah, blah. Now it's already 2020 and it's like, well, those foldable phones break and you're starting to realize that it's always going to be cheaper and more robust to just have one screen and then you're and then you also look at uh, self-driving cars and it's like they're out there but I don't think you're going to get 3 billion people to upgrade in 10 years. <laughs> they're Well, a lot of a
1: lot of this stuff sometimes it it's harder than what we may be expected or when it comes when it comes to foldable devices today I think we're limited in the materials that are literally mm. out there, right? Yeah. It's like one day we'll have a device that the material that it's made out of is can be folded, but it doesn't leave any gaps and it's super strong and it can kind of click into place when it's fully folded out or it can snap into place when it's fully folded into like a phone form factor. So I, I love sci-fi shows and, mm. and seeing what, what they kind of try and think up. Because I I think. And and I
0: agree for the record. Like, I think if I could have a phone that folds open into four, like I I can unfold it almost like a map, like four ways, and then it turns into a tablet. And then if I could just have, like, I don't know, how about a scanner keyboard get projected out and I can use it as a gaming laptop? That sounds ideal. But at the same time, 20 years from now, if they just offer a solid screen and it doesn't break (laughs) or has a battery life that's five times longer, it. I think this is when I start asking fundamental questions, not to be a party pooper, but won't they always have probably better battery life than half the cost if they don't fold? And isn't this almost what we're seeing with laptops, like you said, right? For now, sure. Yeah, for now. Like the humble laptop. If everyone could have a touch screen on their laptop for free, they would. And I actually like touch screens on a laptop. I'm one of those people. But if it's even 100 dollars $50. I've most of my friends say I won't even pay fifty dollars to add a touchscreen to a laptop. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah. So it, it depends on what people actually see value in. If they see value in it, sure. You know, if it's marketed in a slick way and there's there's actual real world usage for particular things, then sure. I mean, unfortunately, the app ecosystem, native app ecosystem on Windows, has is been pretty garbage when it comes to touch <laughs> support and pen support. Yeah. So this is why I think we haven't seen huge adoption of tablet style Windows devices. You know, I would love a, a tablet device that just does everything like a Surface Pro, yeah. but you know And it's your the, phone maybe if you fold it up. M- maybe, right? But at the end of the day, like the software ecosystem just isn't there on Windows to have that sort of iPad style experience so you know I think we'll get there one day Uh, there needs to be a lot more advancements in wireless connectivity as well so when you think about how Wi-Fi and Bluetooth today works it is shit it is so clunky you know you know this device doesn't quite connect properly sometimes this other thing does after you oh just do a firmware update, you know, that'll fix all the problems. It's like, I shouldn't have to do a firmware update in the first place, right? Like there's all these yeah. n- niggling little things that need to be addressed before we get there. I mean, there's some things that Apple have done with, you know, their AirPods, right? Mm-hmm. When you just open up the AirPods case next to a phone, it just automatically pairs. They just handshake and go, hello. Yeah. That's how all wireless devices should be, right? Uh, and I think
0: they will be eventually because you know more and more people will figure it out, and more and more people will say, "I'm not buying this if it isn't easy to use." I really think in 20 years, yeah. people will look back at this time period, kind of like how we look back at like the late 1800s. Like, can you believe the crap people had to put up with to do anything? Like the amount of like back then, it was harder than now. But they'll look at us and go, "Look at all these charges they had," and it's like you guys really had to get different. Like first of all, they won't even need to plug anything. I think everything will be wirelessly charged, even without being on a desk. Like I think literally, you'll like almost like Wi-Fi will be beamed in.
1: Like we're getting into futurism here, but yeah. Well, I mean, well, you don't have to look to the future. I mean, it's hilarious. It still exists to a certain degree. Well, here's the thing, right? A lot of these technologies that we want to see in cutting edge devices—they've been around for a long time. It's just a case of making it better, making it more affordable making it more applicable. Wireless charging, wireless docking, there were laptops 10 years ago that had that functionality, right? Mm -hmm. But it was just, it was expensive to implement, didn't work too well, you know, there are all sorts of challenges. There are regulatory problems around using certain wireless uh, Mm. bands. You want to make sure you're not giving people
0: cancer or, or more likely... Uh, messing with the frequency between different bands, right?
1: Well, yeah, certain bands you're not allowed to use in certain countries. So, Mm -hmm. you know, fast forward 10 years, we've got Wi-Fi 6E on the horizon that should give us access to, I think it's a 60 gigahertz um, Mm -hmm. band that, you know, will enable really high speed, low latency, sort of within the same room device to device connectivity. We'll see how on the software side and firmware side that's handled. But, you know, we, I guess keep saying we need more of that, that innovation to happen, to have more of these seamless user experiences where frankly, the device just gets out of the way. You know, I can just focus on doing what I want to do. Right. Um. Some of my favorite examples, again, going to sci-fi situations is like Westworld, there's scenes where characters sit down in front of a workstation and they put their tablet down and it just wirelessly connects to the screen and everything lights up. Yeah, we'll get there one day. Um, How long that'll be, I have no idea. Uh, I'm not a betting man, so, you know, I'll keep my money in my pocket. Exactly. That's what I was kind of saying,
0: right? Like five years ago, I would have been like,
1: oh, yeah, all this stuff will happen.
0: And now I'm like, well, it will, but probably not as quickly as I thought.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, look, fingers crossed we get to that future
0: quickly. Let me see here. So, Eshel Dar Epshin writes in, hope I said that right, and says, what type of gaming laptop would you buy? You're going to get one of those 17-inch 5k laptops with two power supplies or would you get a more lighter laptop and maybe an eGPU
1: i'm a desktop guy i mean i fiddled around with gaming notebooks and i even fiddled with an eGPU for a while just to see what it was like and none of those experiences were fantastic to be Mm -hmm. perfectly uh, perfectly frank it was just it wasn't wasn't really what i what i was used to Uh, i like having a, a big, stonking, powerful desktop underneath the desk that sits there, hums away, and I have a nice big screen to do what I want to do, right? You know, so so in terms of what I like, I like having a thin and light notebook that has sort of enough power, but I, I like a thin and light notebook that has a big screen, you know, like give me a 15-inch a that has an ultra-low power CPU, like a 15 watt CPU and a big ass battery. I don't even need a good graphics card, right? Just mm-hmm. give me that. And, and, you know, the LG gram kind of fits in that category. Yes, and it, that's I, exactly like what you, sounds like I you like, want. I like that. Yeah. I like that product and I haven't got around to getting one myself yet, but it seems to be a very popular product in that category because it's, I think LG found a niche that not many vendors were, were, Make I mean, it's
0: almost the size of a thirteen-inch laptop, but it has a six, you know, five fifteen-point-six-inch screen, which is crazy impressive, honestly. And, yeah, and, and, it's a, and again, it's weight, right? Like, it also doesn't weigh a lot. And I think people, again, kind of like your Westworld tablet thing. It's like you know, you can make it fold up as much as you want or as small as you want. If that thing weighs more than
1: two pounds, I'm not carrying it around. <laughs> it, exactly. So. You know what we're seeing today with foldable devices, in particular. You know this is sort of like version one mm-hmm. The laptops that we have today is version twenty point right? <laughs> yeah. So we 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 haven't had the iteration uh, yet when it comes to mo- even mobile devices. We're on like generation, you know, six or seven, right? We're not we're not even there at the same level yet. So I always say with these things, give it time. Uh, to the early adopters that want to pay, you know, fifteen hundred bucks for a Samsung foldable phone, uh, go for it. I uh, wouldn't. Uh, if it was my money, I'd stay well away. But if you want to, you know, help pay for more innovation down the line for the rest of us, go right ahead. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, I would just say, kind of on that whole subject, that I don't personally see. It's I like I've always loved the idea of eGPUs like external GPUs for a laptop. I could see that being a solution I go with eventually, but they're just not there, you know. There's the bandwidth limitations. Like you, I always see this. It's hilarious, right? It's like, yeah. oh, unfortunately, if you have more than like I don't know something around a 2060, um, like I think like straight up 2080s perform 20 20% percent worse. Like you might as well get a 5700 XT if you're gonna have an external GPU. But at that point, though, they make GPUs that strong in laptops that are pretty thin now. So it's like, and then you look at the cost of the enclosure and it's like, look, if it was like yep. 150 bucks for the enclosure, which some of them might be getting close to there now. And I could put... Some of it, yeah. You know, and then I could put like, uh, I don't know, whatever it is. I guess now an RTX 3080 or whatever big Navi is in there. And that whole thing didn't lose performance compared to if it was in a desktop then it makes sense. But if you tell me this external GPU costs $400 or the enclosure does, and then you tell me I'm going to lose 20% performance, I might as well just get a thin laptop with a 2070 built into it. Like, it'll cost the same. And now it's always in the laptop.
1: and, and I think that's the problem is that maybe three years ago, eGPUs seemed like a great idea because we weren't quite there in terms of the graphics performance in a, in a laptop-style form factor. But because... Touring products just got so good, you know. Well, really, with Pascal too, right? Oh, well, no, totally. Sorry, with Pascal, um, if they just got so good on the mobile side, and I guess touring was more of an iteration of that, then you know that kind of I think killed a lot of that eGPU market because you've touched on the problems there, which is there's always a performance overhead, mm-hmm. so you're you're always sacrificing performance. And the cost of that kind of setup is always going to be more expensive. So it's like more expensive than a desktop anyway. So it's like, well... Or close enough
0: where it's like just build a desktop and get a thin and light laptop or just you have the money. get. I mean, like I already mentioned it, I saw a Razer laptop that has a 2080 Super in it. You know, I mean, and and after everything's said and done, you're spending like an extra 500 bucks to just have it built into your laptop. So just do that.
1: Yeah, so graphics cards just almost got too good <laughs> in a lot of ways, and uh, mm-hmm. eGPUs never really came down that much in price. You can get cheap ones, but then you're compromising on, you know, it can't charge the laptop or it doesn't mm-hmm. have lots of ports. Because I look at it as I a want it to be almost too, like yeah. a dock. It, yeah, if if I'm if I'm if I'm having a box <laughs> sitting on my desk, it better also have docking capability as well. And if it doesn't have that, then you know, you're paying a lot of money for just the graphics card and that's sort of it. So uh, I think eGPUs, it's always been a super niche thing. Mm -hmm. And because the volumes aren't high, you're not going to see a lot of money put into R&D of that. Like you said, there's all sorts of bandwidth limitations with Thunderbolt. You know, I don't think Thunderbolt 4 is really going to help us out drastically either. Again, like we
0: keep getting better connections with more bandwidth, but we also keep getting stronger graphics cards that need more bandwidth.
1: Exactly, exactly, yeah. So I, I think you're right in that it seems that discrete graphics in notebooks has kind of killed the need for an eGPU. You, you will always find niche use cases where an eGPU mm-hmm. makes some sort of sense, um, but you know, all of the complication around driver problems and early on they weren't really plug and play and this and that. And it's like the whole thing felt a little duct tape at the very beginning and it's gotten a lot better than where where we where sure. it started. But it's still not quite there for it to be just a seamless plug and play experience for me to say, yep, if you, if you want that set up, go for any GPU. Because fundamentally, I always say just go for a good desktop and, and a thin and light notebook, like a, if you can buy an yeah. older Spectre or an XPS on sale, I think that's sort of the sweet spot.
0: Jessica writes in and says, do you think the trend of OEMs such as Dell and Lenovo shipping laptops with Linux, and I know HP used to do that too, is there a market niche created by MacBook moving to ARM for them, or I guess, I don't know, I guess the question is, do you think Linux as a standard shipping operating system from OEMs will increase? stay the same or it's just kind of a thing that pops up
1: every now and then it's a good question i think it'll stick around i don't see linux uh fundamentally getting better it would be nice to have more choice in Mm -hmm. the desktop uh operating system space it's really windows or nothing and Mm -hmm. windows does some things really well and does lots of things really badly we were talking about it before we started oh my god the problems
0: i have to deal with some some of these months it's just it's just
1: ridiculous yeah so linux is important for some users Mm -hmm. um as as much as people will love to tell you I, i i don't think linux is still quite there yet for the average user and i think fundamentally because it just doesn't have the sheer amount of of share in the market if you Google laptop problems, you get answers to Windows PCs mm. and how to fix problems yeah. via Windows. Linux has the issue where not just what flavor of Linux, but what version of, of Ubuntu or, or you know whatever you're using, right? I, I kind of wanted to see Ubuntu succeed, not that I really care for Linux personally, but it would just be nice to have more choice. But it seems that in, you know long-term, Windows isn't going away.
0: I was ranting about this on my last live stream. I really think our best chance is if SteamOS really would have taken off and they just charged $10 for it. Because you need a multi-billion dollar company to take a version of Linux, in my opinion, and yeah. make it work with tech support and just turn it into a competitor to Windows. And people will say, oh, Ubuntu is. It's like, It is not. It is not. It is not comparable. I'm sorry, guys. Like, and I use Linux in college all the time for all different types of applications like Mathematica and stuff. And so I know how to use Linux. I'm just telling you, I'm telling you, for the normal person, it's not there. And I really think Valve could have done it if they put in the effort. But I think they were just kind of playing chicken with Microsoft.
1: Yeah, it definitely, Steam machines kind of came and went quite quickly. (laughs) Yeah, Quicker than I thought they would. Even I wasn't sure they'd even do well. I, yeah, I didn't think it was really going to go anywhere. It was an interesting idea, but I sort of looked at it and it was like gamers aren't aren't crying out for an alternate solution. Um, maybe businesses might down the track. I don't know. yeah, it's 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 interesting, although on the flip side, using gaming as, as like a lever to increase market share of that kind of Linux based product would have been very interesting. Yeah, I think uh, they could have done it. They just did not see it through at all. That's a fun thought exercise If Steam OS was suddenly this third... Real competitor, yeah. I think it'd be better if it was, and I'm still
0: mad at them, as you can tell from the tone of my voice. All right, I have one more question here. Griff Dilla Griff writes in and says, any news of OLED screens being cheap enough and better at resisting burn-in? Are we getting closer or will OLED never be standard in laptops? Well, let me. I I think you see in the notes. Uh, I just ordered an OLED laptop, and I only paid fourteen hundred. Grif de la griff. So I'm seeing OLED becoming much more standard in laptops soon. But what would you say?
1: I would say just just you know this is my personal view. Um, from what I've seen, I've I've had the same laptop side by side, same model. One was standard 4K LCD, high quality 4K LCD. The other was the 4K OLED. Unless you had like like a very dark black picture, mm. which is what OLED is good for, you couldn't really notice a huge difference, right? Now, it's fundamentally different on like a TV where you can push up the nits and all that in terms of the brightness because mm. you can draw a lot more power and everything else. But in a laptop... So the black's more obvious. Yeah, but in a laptop, power efficiency is really important. OLED screens are great. But they suck a lot of power
0: isn't that funny too cuz i remember when they first started talking about oled in uh 2012 one of the big things was and they're so
1: efficient and then yeah i don't know <laughs> they seem to use <laughs> a lot of they're, energy they're efficient maybe versus plasma but oh, definitely sure. not versus well, typical yeah <laughs> yeah 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 um yeah paul went out for plasma what a great technology but uh it had its issues um yeah, when it comes to OLED though, there there are fundamental problems around power usage that are not going to go away anytime soon. Um not to mention that there's only I think Samsung is the only uh, was it Samsung uh, LG. Or, sorry, LG. Yeah, LG's really Although the Samsung's only Samsung's
0: going too soon, so that will help with the pricing competition. Soon, Yeah. Because exactly, Samsung was but, kind of doubting OLED, and now OLED is taking over the high-end TV market pretty rapidly and phone. And I think Samsung's realized they should take it seriously. So just to be clear, I'm a huge proponent of OLED. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, I think it comes down to when you hit a certain point in the contrast and how good it is for the average person, do you care if it's above a certain point? Professionals sure as hell do, but mm-hmm. to the average person, no, they care about, is my laptop going to get me that eight, 10 hours advertised? And is it going to be thin and light? And can I get it under 1200 bucks? You know, yeah. they're,
0: they're, which is they're, the they're, thing, right? I didn't set out to get an OLED, but I got one on the way that was $1,400 and has like an eight hour battery life. So it's like, hey, mm-hmm. I guess it's, 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 I think it just launched actually. And I got a deal because, you know, I I still have a, Company discount, uh, technically active (laughs) from when I used to work at one company. Um, But uh, so I don't know when I see a, but I think even new without the discount, it's like $1,500 or something. When I see a $1,500 kind of mid range gaming laptop, equivalent gaming laptop for it's actually the new NV15 with an OLED screen, I go, oh, okay. Well, they're coming down in price though. You have to admit that, I think. Because
1: they used to only be in like, Yeah. $2,000 laptops, $1,500, pretty cheap. Yeah, they seem to be uh, available at more price points and more levels. So, look, uh, at my my heart, I'm a technologist. I love technology in in all its forms. I would love to see OLED proliferate everywhere and mini LED, micro LED, you know, all these standards. Uh, Let's have it take off because. L C D panels haven't really, again, when we talk about stagnation, yeah. they haven't changed a lot since we moved to LED backlit displays, right? They haven't changed a lot in the last 10 years. So it's it's kind of it's overdue for a lot of those innovations in the the television space to translate over to PC monitors at a decent price point because it's easy to do in a TV that's two, three, four, five thousand dollars. But in a PC monitor that's 250 bucks, that's a different challenge. Right.
0: But here's the thing with laptops they turn their screens off regularly and you replace them every two years. So I actually think AMOLEDs are going to be much more prevalent in laptops than you would think fairly soon. I mean, when again, when I see them coming into laptops for under 1500, I go, oh well, this used to be this insane thing. It's just keep in mind, they don't look quite as good. Like my laptops won't look as good as my LG TV. It's not going to. And it works well on a laptop compared to a desktop because the screen turns itself off every few minutes, right? So burn-in really isn't as much of an issue. I guess that's my answer is I think it's going to be more prevalent in laptops than you might think. It's just, it's not going to be the standard in laptops, probably ever because of how cheap and energy efficient like you said, right, LCDs. And when it comes to desktops, honestly, I'm becoming less and less optimistic on how long it's going to take for them to finally give us 27-inch OLEDs or micro-LEDs. Exactly. All right, well, I think that's all the questions that we have time to get through. We've been talking for quite a long while here. Um, as usual, the time just flies by. But, you know, before we go, I guess let me ask you this, first of all, just is there anything else you wanted to discuss that we didn't get to?
1: Not really. I think we touched on a pretty wide range of uh, of topics, really. So, you know, uh, just I'll, I'll I'll leave everyone with uh, I'm very excited to see what AMD is going to bring out at the end of this month in terms of graphics. We've seen mm-hmm. their CPU announcement. We've seen GPUs from NVIDIA. Uh, we've got GPUs from uh, from AMD yet to come out. We've got Rocket Lake coming out early next year. So there's There is a lot of maybe
0: Intel's going to announce the graphics card lineup in Computex. Maybe I know that.
1: <laughs> maybe. Maybe who knows? who knows but it's it's a very exciting time, I think, to be in, in Oh IT. God, yes. It's so much more interesting than five years
0: ago when you're like, "What lake are we on?" You know
1: <laughs> yeah exactly there, there's uh, I'd say there's there's a lot more innovation in, from a from a CPU. Uh, mm. point of view then we've seen we you know we've seen a lot of stagnation there and it's awesome to see we are getting back to the i like to call the good old days where you know you can expect a 15 to 20% performance improvement sort of gen to gen on the CPU side or i more. think everyone's yeah. it's, or in, more. it's
0: insane and then if you wait 3 years you can upgrade to something that's like 2 3 times better it would actually
1: make a di- yeah w- everyone's been numbed to use getting used to Ten percent or less performance improvements, you know? Oh, yeah.
0: I you know, and that's what I keep how I end a lot of these podcasts is I say, I know people go, When should I wait to upgrade to get this one thing that'll last 10 years? I just keep that's like banging my head on a wall. Guys, the era of getting Sandy Bridge and it lasts ten years is over. Things are just gonna keep getting better. So maybe try to time it right you know you have a big amd launch coming over the next fall so maybe if you want to wait till spring that would be a good idea but the idea of you waiting a couple years for the perfect time
1: to upgrade is kind of dead for for a while now that's there's a bit of fallacy in that thinking of i'll just wait for the next thing just around a corner i'll just wait for the next thing just around the corner i I know wait for zen three what about zen four I, exactly right. Zen uh, five when you get Zen four. <laughs> <laughs> so, so something you were discussing with your brother on one of your recent podcasts about just buy the best of the previous gen, and I think that's a very solid advice because if, if it's cheap get, enough, but it's often less than half the price. Exactly. So it's like why, why on earth would you spend so much extra money when you can get 90, eighty to ninety percent of the same performance for half the price? You know, just
0: Unless you want go. the best,
1: then get, well, unless you, know. you want the best, you know, it's your money. You know, spend mm-hmm. it like you want. But you know, I say the same thing around our cars with with uh, with friends of mine. I say, let some other Porsche take all the oh, depreciation yeah, in the first couple so. of years. I just right? got a car and just you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's a 2019 model,
0: and uh, letting it compared to the 2020 or I guess now we're almost at 2021s with some companies, yeah. Um, It's literally half the price of the new one. No, no, I agree. Uh, So I think let's close out on that little piece of advice. And uh, I don't know. Otherwise, thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you very much. Really appreciate your time.
0: The following podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website, Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law's Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, Moore's Laws Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and Select Technical Editing by Carbon Cry. You can find all of our information, including how to get a hold of us, at ww.moreslawsdead.com. And if you are a fan and would like to send mail or other hardware, please mail parcels to Moore's Law's Dead, P.O. Box 10468, Peoria, Illinois 61612. And speaking of fans, without exaggeration, the patrons are responsible for the continued distribution of the content you just listened to. And so if you have some extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, the Moore's Law's Dead Discord full of like minded people who would love to meet you. I am one of them. And at higher tiers, you get access to ad free episodes of Broken Silicon, the back catalog of Flyover States podcast, thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts, and other perks as well. And if you cannot afford to support us, please just share Moore's Law's Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media and Reddit. And give Broken Silicon and Flyover States a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. All of this really does help so much more than I think anyone realizes. If you'd like to advertise on the podcast or a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its fans supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Matthew McMullen, Tello, Steen, Benny Berlin, Justin Yant, Thomas Rupp, I Love You, Lynn and Jim, Bollocks, Joshua Alvin, Muhammad Al-Khawari, Frederick Lau, James Crass, Justin Parrish, Zachary Martin, Darren's Herod, Brad Bedlin, Phil S., Courtney Elliott, The Ninth Dude, Greg Renegar, TSPCFS, Night Rogue 77 The Mechanical Philosopher, Libo Kinkilo, Fatboy Diesel, Daniel Hyde, D. Kunky, Christoph Novak, Jack O'Neill, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Juan Garcia, VI Pass, Sadler Sadler, Isaiah Gosner, Lethros, Telos, Hey There's a Kitty, Greg T. Wanchik, Jacob Barber, Xodie, Hector Santana, Matthew Lane, Joe McMorrow, Jan Rauner, Rubber Ducks, of Full, Ali Robertson, Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Job, Evan Dingle, Dominique Cox, Stefan, Original Ross, ZD Tech, Zam MacArthur, Total Silo, Sol Connor Michael Costa, Andrew S, Blake, Aaron Keith, Kerry Baldino, Endless Loggins, Tom Senfilippo, Justice Brennan, Ivan K, Trevor Powers, Sayonara, Alenia, Joshua Staveness, Janiel Nishball, Franco Frederic, Hardware Numbers, Alex Carastillo, Dark Rain 2049, Linton Barry, Joseph Kyerman, Carlos Valdez, Carnival Bear, Marco226, Zebra Z Burr, Zlicky, Mattin Parshegi, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Garanadin, Patrick J.S. Justin Staples, Freddie Kanoas Jr., Christoph Foster, Kiwi Phil, Joaquim Hagen, Sarah Light, Anthony Gareffa, Matthew Griffin, Alex, Joseph Loria, Calm Marco, Deke, Cheesy Ramen, Raul Abeneni, Master Andy Wan, Jake Dude 23, Brian Riggleman, Maxime Bratukin, Ryan Danescu, Dave McCoy, Valco Malev, Messiers, Paul Bogdan, Morton Svensson, Andrew, Thomas Summers, Maurice Courtois, Matthew J. Link, Moe's from Oz, Mai Sharona, Derek File, Roman, Jacob Stankiewicz, Jack Pym, Austin Tanis, JBG, Stefan Hart, Christopher A. Butler, Charles Antoine Fouteau, Peter Moore, Chris Licata, Justin Thomas, Sam Miller, James Kitchens, Kevin Chen, Shinkir, Dean Dispitsky, Paul J., My Name Is Nobody, Ruben Marr, Louise Correa, John Jamison, Eshel Dar Epson, and Luca. And of course, thank you to Sahara for the music.